So if you were here last month, we spent some time in the book of Genesis looking at the creation of Adam, the creation of the world, and the investing in that man, that Adam, with responsibility, delegated authority to represent God in the earth. Uh, I was looking in my Bible last night as part of the review, and I saw for the first time in, in Genesis 1.28, when God says, let man have our image, let man bear our image, and have dominion, he then says, let him have dominion over the birds of the air and over the fish of the sea and over everything that creeps on the earth. And if you think about it as like a three-storied house, you have birds of the air and you have fish of the sea at the top and the bottom. And who's in the middle? There's this man. And he's supposed to have dominion. He's supposed to use the birds and the fish in a way that glorifies God. He has to bridge those three, three floors of that house. And so the very beginning of Adam's calling to bear God's image is to mediate God's presence as he takes dominion. Some of us are afraid of the word dominion because we connote or we, we have connotations of dominion as ruling over something in a tyrannical sense. But actually dominion is stewardship right use of the things that God has given us and then using them in such a way as to glorify God and serve our fellow man. And so uh, last month we looked at this pattern that God had invested Adam and then quickly there was a fall. So today I want to look at the theme of how we live after the image of the last Adam. Paul when he's promising the resurrection, he says, we have borne the image of the earthly man and we will bear the image of the heavenly man. And so that is not something that we begin, as we saw last month, that's not something that only begins at the resurrection. So as the last Adam, Christ tastes death for all of those who would become sons of the Father. Those who are in Adam deserve death and as the last Adam, Christ takes their death and makes them be able to become the sons of God. In his resurrection, therefore, Christ becomes a source of new life. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So the, the Bible uses a number of different imageries to describe this, and I want to look at those things today. As Jesus Christ is our new head, therefore as men, we desire to live by his grace. We, we live in the supply of God's grace that he gives to us through our new head, Jesus, instead of the death which we receive through our old head, Adam. We want to live according to his word for God's glory in the earth. Remember we said that if Adam is to take dominion over the things that he's been given, he has to even rule over his own heart by the word of God. He was given dominion over everything, but then God told him, don't eat from that tree in the garden. Adam can eat from any plant he wants, but even he has a rule, and the only way he'll obey that rule is if he loves his God and honors that God's word and then obeys with that love and faith, that, that trust in God's word as being a good promise. So my aim today is that knowing that only, that only in Christ we can reign, we should as men press on to learn how we might walk in that grace. I want to look at four things today. This idea, which is going to be a review of where we ended last month, of reigning in life through Christ. 
This notion is extremely twisted in the modern era, especially what you might call in the faith teachings or the, the faith slash faith word message. And I want to show how Paul actually says we reign in life through Christ. I want to look at the grace of the new birth in John 3, how Jesus explains the new birth as a gift to Nicodemus. I want to look at Paul's use of the imagery of adoption as it corresponds with that. And then finally, how we work through God's grace. So my, my main aim today is that in the prior month, we looked at a biblical anthropology. Who is man? What was man created to do? How is man supposed to live? Why did man fall? What are the implications of that fall? And then now that we know Christ has redeemed us from that fall, how do we live in practical ways? How do we live walking out that faith? And so today I want to look at the main motivation. So we, we described last month the what. We're all these little atoms in our little gardens and we're supposed to tend and keep and beautify and glorify the areas that God has given us. We couldn't have done that but in Christ, we are restored in, in some measure to that responsibility, to that privilege, to that task. And therefore, as Christians, how do we use God's word? Just as Adam had to obey that one command not to eat from that tree, we likewise have many more commands, right? Where sin increases, the law increases, right? There are many more dangerous things in our world that we have to navigate through God's word. And I've come to the conviction that the means by which we accomplish the Christian life is the most important ingredient to whether we will succeed in obeying in faith or disobeying in faithlessness. What, what I mean by that is the measure, or excuse me, the mechanism by which we obey needs to be God's word, God's promises, God's grace as it's delivered in the gospel and that promise becomes our motivation, which is, is a very interesting subject because very often we will use terms like, well, you just need to walk by the Spirit, or you need to participate with the grace of God. And those are true things, but very seldom do we actually explore what does it mean to do that? How do I do that? So I want to review last month uh, in one way, just in Romans 5. In Adam's fall, all men were subject to sin and death, adding their own transgressions to the guilt that they received. Paul teaches this in Romans 5, 12 through 17. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So he's saying that all men sinned in the sin of that one man. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So this idea that Christ is the last Adam isn't something that we've invented. Paul says that clearly in Romans 5. It's not just Christian theology. It is the word of God. Adam was saying something about the one who was to come, Jesus Christ. Though Adam was called to have dominion, as we've mentioned earlier, death reigned. So when you hear death reigned from Adam to Moses, you have to hear that Adam was called to reign. He was called to reign on God's behalf, in God's stead, for God's glory, by God's word. And Adam fell from that task, and therefore death 
supplanted him. So in Adam's fall, however, the call to take dominion over the earth was not rescinded. This is important to understand. In the curses that God brings in Genesis 3 because of sin, he does not say to Adam, you are not supposed to take dominion. You're not supposed to spread. The reason we know this very clearly is that at the Tower of Babel, God judged them for not going into the earth and caused them to go fill the earth. God wants the earth to be filled with his glorious image bearers. Nevertheless, unless someone defeats death for Adam, Adam will stay defeated. Death won over Adam, and Adam could not defeat death. Thanks be to God, as we know in the gospel, that Jesus Christ takes Adam's death, defeats it, and bestows justification, righteousness, forgiveness upon all those who believe in him. And that's exactly where Paul goes in Romans 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So the picture is this, that as, as a representative, Adam sinned and therefore death spread to all who came under Adam. And Paul says, likewise, Christ as the new Adam has tasted of death and therefore bestowed grace upon all those who come after him. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, that is, one sin brought many deaths, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, one obedience that has bloomed into a thousand graces. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, and here's our phrase, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to reign in life? That was where we ended last month. And it's my belief that only in Christ, as Paul teaches here and elsewhere, only in Christ can those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins reign in life. So hopefully the dots are connecting here. Adam was called to reign for God's glory, by God's word, in God's grace, and he sinned, and therefore he was subjected to death. Death reigned, and then our Lord took that death, died, and was risen, and we, by, by the teaching of the New Testament, were risen with him so that we can reign in life. So the question is, therefore, how is it that a man comes to be found in Christ? This is getting back to what I was saying earlier. We use these terms, which are from the scriptures, so often they are disconnected from how. How do I do that? What, what do I need to do in order to be in Christ? How do I walk by the Spirit? How can those who are dead in their trespasses do anything? As Nicodemus comes to speak with Jesus that night, the Lord taught him what is necessary. In John 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I want you to picture that for a second. So often we've heard these stories and we never think about what Nicodemus is asking. He's clearly saying to Jesus, you're making no sense, right? Verse five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that is from the natural, and the spirit that is from heaven, as he explains later, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. 
Nicodemus's question is a picture, in a sense, of man's attempt to accomplish his own justification. It won't work. If you want evidence of that, come tomorrow. My, my wife will be there. You can clearly see that as she is a very expectant lady here now in the second, third trimester, there is no way any baby, let alone a full-grown man, could enter into a womb a second time. Nicodemus is saying, this makes no sense. How can we be born twice? Jesus teaches that man must be born from above, that is, from the action of the Spirit. The picture is this, that we were born in Adam. This is going back to the same idea that Paul uses in Romans 5. We were born in Adam, and we need to be born under a new head. That new head is Jesus Christ. John 3, 7 through 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it is going, or where it comes from, or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit effects of wind. We, we had a tornado scare the other day, and out of nowhere, I had to stop coding. I had to go down into the basement of the building I was in, and then I had to essentially hang out with a bunch of people in other offices, and it, it totally disrupted my day. It caused me to take action. Wind outside of my building. That's what Jesus is saying. The wind does whatever it wants. Man cannot stop or predict or change the course of the wind. So the question then becomes, is the new birth a fait accompli? That is to say, is it something that we just have to accept as a reality that we cannot do anything about? The wind blows wherever it wants, right? I don't need to believe the gospel. If I'm going to be forgiven, then the Spirit's going to blow on me, and I'm going to become born again. That sort of reasoning is natural reasoning. It's fleshly reasoning. Do we wait for the Spirit to affect God's change? The answer is no, with a caveat. Okay? Answering Nicodemus's incredulity, that is, un, inability to believe, Jesus prescribes a remedy for the dilemma. He answers Nicodemus' question in John 3, 13 through 15. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he says, the wind blows where it wishes, and yet at this verse, verse 15, he's saying the way that this is accomplished is there's some sort of evidence of belief. I want to look at verse 14 in, in a little bit of detail, and I want to tease out some implications from what Jesus is saying about his death. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... This is strange language for us because we probably don't remember the story, um, but I want to I explain one idea from the story that I think is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. As Israel travels from Egypt to the promised land, they grumble, and the Lord sent serpents in their midst, which killed many people. They were fiery serpents. They would come and bite someone, and that someone would die. So the people acknowledge their sin, and the people ask Moses to pray for them. God then tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and to raise a pole. When those who were bitten look to the bronze serpent, they're saved. 
That's, that's a, the story in a nutshell in the 30-second version or so. Just as the bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. This is where most typology just ends. We hear that verse, oh, okay, the bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole, Jesus is lifted up on a cross, great, got it. And that's where the, that's where the teasing out of the idea usually stops. But I'm, I'm impressed from the way that numbers talks about this and the way that the New Testament references this, that there's something more important to see in the account, in the historical account of what took place. There's an imagery, there's an implication from that imagery that is extremely important to see. It, sometimes it helps if you use your imagination when you think about these stories. I always try to picture them in a, in a sense. Uh, the fiery serpents that came out in the wilderness were the result of sin and judgment of death against that sin. The people grumble. God sends fiery serpents among their midst. The fiery serpents come as a result of their grumbling and their, their re- rebellion against God. They're, they're murmuring against God's grace as he's bringing them into a promised land, into a great gifted land. And so the serpents are the fruit of sin. And so the bronze serpent then is God's answer along with his instruction to look to that bronze serpent. So we have serpents on the ground who are biting and killing Israelites and we have a serpent that's up on a pole and the Israelites who were spared believed in God's promises. God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and to everyone who looks upon it, he will be delivered or, or saved. Therefore, because the Israelites heard Moses' retelling of what to do with that bronze serpent, they believe that promise and obey that promise. And Numbers says, when anyone who was bitten looked to the serpent, they were spared. So, what is the connection between the serpent on the ground and the serpent on the pole? It's the serpent. They're the same thing. That's why Paul uses this kind of idea to describe a double exchange that's made at the cross. Paul says that he took our sin and we received his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he that is God made him, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. Serpent on the pole, serpent on the ground. So that in him he might become, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So these people look to this pole and the death which was about to come against them is removed. Now, in the serpent account in Numbers, it doesn't explain how that worked. That was a mystery until Christ was revealed. And 2 Corinthians is Paul's explanation of that, that 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 death was transferred to our Lord. This is the clear and pure gospel. So Christ's answer to Nicodemus's incredulity, how can one be born again, is his own death. He says, this is how you're going to believe and enter the kingdom of God and be born again, is I'm going to take your death. Those who trust in Christ, therefore, look away from their sin and towards his forgiveness, which he accomplished. So I want you to picture yourself as an Israelite. I get bit by this snake. I'm going to die. I look to this bronze serpent. I I remember God's promise. Look to that bronze serpent that Moses raised up on a pole. I look away from the snake, and I look towards a different snake. 
Why? Because that imagery is connected. There's snakes on the ground and a snake on the pole. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. This is the faith that accords with the new birth. So when I said, do we accomplish the new birth? Clearly, the answer is no. The spirit blows where he wants. But we as people, as men, we have to obey the promise. We have to obey and trust in and participate in the promise which is put forth in the gospel. Again, think back to the numbers account. If I'm bitten by a snake and I don't look to the pole, what's going to happen? The poison's going to infect me. I'm not going to make it. Paul uses extremely similar language to Jesus' new birth teaching to describe how salvation comes to those who are God's children. John 1 says in 12 and 13, to, to as many as those who believed in him, he, became the, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Paul says in Galatians 4, 3 through 5, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. By that, he later explains here in Galatians 4 and in other books that that is sin and the prohibitions of do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The point is this, that just as we had this imagery of Adam and all those who come through Adam, so also we have an, another imagery here in this chapter that there is this law, and by that he doesn't just mean the law of Moses, but I think he also is implying the law of sin and death that corresponds with that law, that Christ is born as one who is under the law so that he can break free from, the, from underneath, so to speak. Paul says that those who were under the law were held there through slavery to sin. The Hebrew writer, who I'm convinced was Pauline-ish, if not Paul himself, uses this exact same phrase. He says that those who were held in bondage were held there through slavery to sin. And later, another place says that in 1 Corinthians 15, that the sting of sin is death. So all of this is undone in Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul goes on to say in Galatians 4, that because we've been adopted, he's given us the Spirit of God. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The question, therefore, is, as those who, is, who have been given his Spirit, how do we walk by the Spirit? This was what I was aiming at in the introduction is, we use this phrase, by the Spirit, or walk in step with the Spirit, or walk according to the Spirit. And these are biblical phrases. We ought to do those things. The question is, what does the Bible say that is? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? How do I preach by the Spirit? How do you sit there and listen to a sermon by the Spirit? How do you sacrifice your flesh and go down to the basement to get the basket of laundry for your wife by the Spirit? You do it according to the promises of God as put forth in the Bible. So how do we work in God's grace as men? I'm convinced that we do it by making a right use of God's gifts. Adam was given a garden. He was given a tree. He was told not to touch the tree, not to eat, don't eat from that tree yet. 
And I, I in, inserted some theology there with that word yet, but don't, don't get hung up on that. Um, and he, he, instead of protecting and keeping that garden, in Genesis 3, when the serpent comes into the garden, Adam doesn't even show up until verse 8. He's nowhere to be found. He's aloof. Perhaps he was amusing himself in another part of the garden. Perhaps he was busy doing something else. Maybe he was wandering outside the garden. The, the reason why the Genesis account doesn't include Adam is we, we should say to ourselves, Adam was supposed to tend and keep the garden. The serpent starts coming in. Adam's nowhere to be found. Where's Adam? That's the question that that text is saying. Is He's not here in the story. We're left wondering where he's, he's at. And it's not specul- speculation to notice his absence from the text. He's missing. He's not doing what he was called to do. So how do we as Christian men who have been born again, who have believed and looked from our death towards Jesus Christ's death on the cross and participate in his victory by faith, which is hearing God's word and obeying, how do we then live out the Christian life? So in the first month, we talked about uh, who is man. And now we're getting to this idea of what is the theology that has to be the foundation for all obedience in the Christian life. And I think it is this. I want to suggest three ideas of how we work in God's grace. What do do we do in order to participate with the grace of God? The first thing I think we have to do, because we've been given minds and we have to love God with all of our mind, we first have to acknowledge his working in our working. So we are doing something, and as we're going to see, God is doing that thing in us. This enables us in the moment to have confidence that we are not alone. This is perhaps the most important thing in today's uh, Christian culture is a pervading sense, even on a subconscious level, of fatherlessness. Even of those who had good fathers, there is a sense in which because of sin and sin's effects in all of life that we doubt whether or not our father, our heavenly father, is a good father. The New Testament says that he is constantly with us. Jesus promised it. But then as Paul is writing letters to the churches, he then applies that doctrine to situations. He says to the Philippian church in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. When we memorize this verse, many of us stop there. Work work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is one of those bad verse divisions. Verse 13, for what's the motivation for why we work out our uh, our salvation? It is for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, we obey in holy reverence because God is working in our working. This would be a heresy if it were not scripture. But what I believe Paul is saying, when I fight the temptation to not click on a webpage that I should not go, God is providing that energy for me not to click on that webpage. When I die to self and ask forgiveness from my wife for saying something wrong, God is the one who is giving me grace to do that. I think this is the most precious, wonderful aid in the moments of temptation. 
As we're going to get to in the next few months, we're going to be talking about very practical matters. Unless we have this foundation that it is God who is with me, then we will doubt whether or not we can make it. If it's up to me, I'm not going to make it. If God's with me, I think I can make it. Paul told the Corinthians of his secret for a great struggle of the gospel. If you've never been absolutely stunned by the efficiency and the work ethic of Paul, I just please go read the Corinthian letters. Paul is dying through his ministry. That's what he says. I'm, I'm bearing the marks of Christ on my body. He, he is struggling with great effort. This was our text from last week. We didn't talk about verse 10, but he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He says in this verse, which is recorded in scripture and not contested, that he worked harder than any of the other apostles. That's quite a bold statement when you think of the, the traditions around where those apostles got to. Mark is, Mark's cross is the national flag of Poland. I want you to imagine how far away Israel is from Poland. They, they, they believe, according to Christian tradition, that he got all the way to the Norse regions. Thomas, it's said, Brother Anvesh probably knows this, Thomas is said to have made it to India. Can you imagine traveling to India from Israel on a donkey or a camel? I can't even imagine that at all. Paul's able to say with a straight face, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. And we hear that and we say to ourselves, boy, I don't think I could work harder than any apostle. Not, not just all of the apostles. What is the secret to Paul's strength it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The ESV translates it as with me. Other translations talk about it as in me. I think both are helpful because he's saying, there's a grace that resides with me. I don't have to wait for a momentary movement of the spirit. I've been given the spirit. And because I've been given the spirit, I can participate with the grace of God. Second, therefore, we must give thanks to God for his grace in every situation. So the first thing we have to do is we have to have a mindset. God is working with me. I'm not alone. God's grace is present here. The second thing we have to do is we must give thanks to God for his grace in every situation. Paul boasts in the grace of God. And we have to remember that grace is a gift. Graces are freely given. So when we think even about Christian effort and we think about participating in the grace of God, it's, it's not like we can, have you ever squeezed something tightly to get juice out of it? That works with a lemon. It doesn't work with an almond. You can't squeeze juice. I mean, you get a little bit of oil, but it takes thousands and thousands of olives or almonds to produce any sort of liquid from these dry things. You can't squeeze God's grace out of your own situation or efforts. It is a gift. It is always a gift. And so because it's always a gift, we always must express thanks. Because God supplies the spiritual energy and motivation to act at all times, he deserves all of the credit for gospel-driven obedience in the Christian life. Never get to the place where as a man you think, a man, you think to yourself, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm making it. Always give thanks to God. This has become perhaps one of the most precious verses to me in the New Testament. 
it's actually not about the first phrase. In 1 Peter 4, Peter writes in verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. That's not the part, although that's a, that's a precious part. This is, the, this is the part that I think is important. Whoever serves, important right now, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So God is glorified that when I obey, when I pull out my Bible to do my Bible reading that morning, if I do it out of a sense of guilt and a sense of, I better do this or I'm not a good Christian, or I do it out of a sense of, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really go for it today. I'm, whether it's negative or positive, whether it's out of a sense of shame or a sense of pride, if I'm not doing it by the strength that God supplies, he will not be glorified in my Bible reading. And you can translate or, or switch out anything. If I don't obey through God's grace, I'm not really obeying because God is to be glorified in, he says, in order that in everything, so two things. First, we must acknowledge God's presence. We must have a mindset that God is with us. Second thing we must do is we must give thanks. And the third thing, this is perhaps the most practical thing. This is in my understanding, which is, is somewhat developed in, in compared to the last few years of, of my preaching. I'm, I'm seeing more clearly the explicit promises that God gives about his word. As a church in 2018, our vision for this year is the renewal of our experience of joy and delight in, in a corporate sense and a personal sense, God's word and God's spirit. And the reason why we're trying to go there is because I think that's what the New Testament tells us to do. The most practical thing we must do is we must give ourselves to the hearing of God's word with faith. The spirit by whom we obey is not given whimsically. The spirit does blow wherever he wishes, right? But then Paul says to the Galatians, now that we've been adopted, you've been given the spirit. So the question is, do I, when I'm seeking to obey God's grace or fight temptation or do whatever I'm supposed to be doing, do I do it just kind of waiting for the spirit to blow, so to speak? Do I do, I do it by waiting around until God gives me the motivation to fight the temptation? No, I take action based on the promises of God. The reason why I say this is his teaching to the Galatian church in Galatians 3, 2 through 5. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How is the Spirit given to the Galatian church? He's given by hearing with faith. That is how God gives the spirit to his people. That at the preaching of God's word, hearing in this context is not hearing anything. It's hearing the word of God. Hearing God's word, receiving it with faith, believing in it, that is when God blows upon a Christian man or Christian woman. Verse three, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And then he reiterates this idea so that they might not miss it. Does he, this is very clear. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law 
or by hearing with faith. This, this is an amazing verse because what it says is that I don't have to kind of just do a prayer walk in the woods until I come to some resolution about what God wants me to do, whether I should obey or not obey. Although I very strongly believe and, and would urge you to pray more than you do, nevertheless, the way that God supplies the Spirit to his people is through the Word of God. So when we think to ourselves about Bible reading, which is where we're going to be going next month, we think to ourselves, man, I really need to become mature, therefore I'm going to read, or I really need to become informed, therefore I'm going to read, or I need to be a better theologian, therefore I'm going to read. All of those reasons are secondary to I need the the activity of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm going to avail myself to reading the word and sitting under the preaching of the word and with my friends and brothers discussing the things of the word so that the spirit might be invested by the Father into my daily life. That I would believe, that I would see glorious promises, believe in them, and that would be the motivation for my obedience. So when I said, how do we walk by the Spirit? How do we obey by the Spirit? I'm becoming increasingly convinced it's we pull out the sword and we wield the sword of the Spirit. That's how we walk in the Spirit day by day. So um, I want to give you some practical things to do for next month. Between now and next month, if you are not doing a Bible reading program right now, in that it doesn't have to be one, a Bible in the year. Uh, you can do whatever you want. It actually does not matter as long as you're in the Word every day. And the reason why you need to be in the Word every day is because Jesus quoted Deuteronomy when he defeated the devil's temptation. Man does not live by bread alone. Remember, we're, the whole context of these men's advanced breakfasts is that we are thinking about ourselves as little atoms in these tiny gardens God has given us. And interestingly, the commandments in Deuteronomy are thou shall not, thou shalt not. But then when we get to Deuteronomy 8, God says to the people, he taught you this so that you would know that man does not live. He uses the word man, not a, not a pronoun you. This is saying, this is something foundational to who we are as people. We are, we are men and therefore we need to read the word. It is more important than earthly food. And most of us, if, if I had to admit, I would clearly admit, I do not, I am not at the current place where I want the Bible more than I want today's Saturday, a Chick-fil-A spicy chicken sandwich. <laughs> it's, it's perfectly fine to be honest before the Lord. And in fact, that's the only way to pray is, is in honesty. We do not value the word of God as much as it is valued. It is infinitely worthy. Um, if you are not praying with someone on a weekly basis, I would encourage you to find two people, whether you can get with them or you can pray for each other over the phone. Perhaps one of the, my favorite joys is at, at the end of most pastoral phone calls, I get to pray with somebody and it's such a blessing. Every Sunday after service, we're up there as a ministry team to pray for people. It is a supreme del delight and a joy. If you don't have someone who's praying for you and you're not also praying with them and for them, find two people you can trust. Whether or not you know them now or whether you make some new friends, find two people. And then 
I would encourage you, there are two sermons. I, th- one of these is the same as last month. It, if you haven't listened to If My Words Abide in You, it would be a great aid. In that sermon, John Piper, who has be, been very influential in my life, he, um, he quotes large portions of scripture for about 15 minutes uh, at, and, and he's doing entire chapters, Romans 8, Genesis, uh, Psalm 1, Psalm 19. Uh, he, he quotes large portions of scripture that he's memorized, and then the rest of that sermon is all about Bible memory and, and what a joy and a blessing that's been. And so as I've been thinking about my goals for 2018, Bible memory has become a, a very important thing for me. So um, next month, we're going to be discussing the reading of God's word and the memorization of God's word and how to do it in such a way as to begin to be able to pull out that sword. We're going to look at how do you go about finding God's grace for particular areas of your life. So just as a preview, for example, if you're finding you're, you're struggling with, you're succumbing to the sin of greed, then it might behoove you to memorize scriptures and to meditate upon scriptures that warn us not only of the dangers of greed, but also of the precious promises that we will have. So, for example, uh, one of the promises given to pastors is to, to do their job because when the chief shepherd appears, he will bring a unfading crown. So, so we're going to look at how to go after prohibitions and promises next month, and we're going to learn how to find them in God's word, and begin to memorize them in such a way as when, when we're in the battle, that sword is primed. We know how to pull it out of the sheath. It's not rusty. It's been sharpened, and it is effective. So that's where we're going for just a preview for next month. So, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We are so thankful that he has communicated his life to us. We thank you that year by year we can celebrate his resurrection. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to learn how to use the grace of God in a way that we make a profitable use of it, that we, that we participate with the Spirit, not in some mystical sense, but in a real sense that we bring the promises and prohibitions of God's word, of your word, to bear in that situation. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to become men who not only honor Christ in our hearts, but in everything we do in all of our life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.